Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. I still didn't respond when people called me doctor because I absolutely assumed and fervently hoped that they were referring to someone else. So we had to change our names. We used unregistered phone numbers so we can be as hidden as possible from the government, but yet as visible as possible to people. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hinken. And this week on the podcast on becoming a doctor, two stories from young people who learn what it means and what they're willing to do to take care of people. Before we get started, we want to thank the Park School of Baltimore, which is a pre-K through grade 12 progressive school located right outside of the city. So this first storyteller um, is Ethel Weld. She's currently an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, uh, as well as a, a wife and a mom and just a real swell lady. And she's going to share this beautiful story for you. Take a listen. So it was a typically crazy day in the medical intensive care unit, Um, and I was a medical intern, brand new, way over my head, and I was still getting used to carrying around the pager, and I was honing my fight-or-flight response to it, um, mostly flight. Um, I always wanted to run whenever it went off, because it was in the habit of summoning me to disastrous situations in the middle of the night that felt way beyond my capability to handle. And I, I still didn't respond when people called me doctor because I, I absolutely assumed and fervently hoped that they were referring to someone else um, who would actually know what to do in the situation at hand. Um, and I, I remember I had been on call for 17 hours, and um, I was just about to sit down. I hadn't sat down once, and I was lowering myself painfully into a chair, thinking about the 13 hours that loomed ahead. And my pager went off. And uh, so I got back up, and I looked, and it was the emergency room um, summoning me uh, down uh, to look at a patient. Um, And I just was so weary, and my mouth was dry, and it felt like it had been used as a latrine by some small animal of the night, and (laughs) subsequently as its mausoleum, as described in... um, in Kingsley Amos's Lucky Jim. Actually, all the descriptions of being extremely hungover that I've ever read um, are pretty evocative of the basic um, MO of being a medical intern. You're basically hungover for an entire year. And as a medical professional, my experience of this affliction is limited to reading other people's firsthand accounts, of course. Um, but, uh, but as I've heard. Um, so I, I, I looked at the page and as the emergency room, and I went... I went down. Uh, they said, there's a patient down there who's speaking in tongues. No one can communicate with him. He's in the upper, unsalvageable reaches of hepatic encephalopathy. In other words, his liver is so dead that it filters none of the toxins that his body produces. And there's nothing to stop him from getting just crazy off the fumes of all his intrinsic poisons, uh, not to mention hemorrhaging out of every pore of his body. Um, so I went, uh, I went down, and, and I approached his hospital bed, <laughs> and um, to the rescue, you know, I was a brand new intern with no ideas about what to do. 
Um, and I saw him from the door. He was this um, slight man. His, the whites of his eyes were the color of a yellow highlighter pen. And his belly was the size of a late-term pregnancy. And he had all the stigmata of chronic liver disease. And um, I went up to him. I started asking him questions. He did seem distraught. He was writhing around. Um, but, I, you know, I actually, he sort of was responding to me. And, and I, it took me about 15 seconds to realize I actually understood what he was saying. Maybe he'd been billed to me as speaking in tongues. And I realized he was, I understood him because he was speaking French. Um, and um, not only French, but the, the mellow um, accented French of Francophone Africa, which I knew well because I'd, I'd lived in Gabon the previous year doing a fellowship in pediatrics. And so I, I started speaking to him in French in my pretty embarrassing and heavily African accented French, but I was able to communicate with him. And... Um, and he told me he had moved. He was from Cameroon. He had moved to Baltimore to stay with family, and he had known he was getting sick over months, and he just couldn't afford a doctor. So he had he had been medicating himself with um, shorties of vodka and uh, and forties of St. Ides because it, it's what he had to make do with because the sugar cane at wine of home was not available. And this was this actually was um, in the armamentarium of, of medicines at home. Um, and he sort of, I remember he gestured with his hands, like these slow, taffy-pulling motions to show, like, the inexorable increase of his belly over the past months and just how, how he knew he was getting sick and he couldn't come in. So I, I brought him up to the, to the ICU, and I, my hand was on his stretcher in the elevator, and I, it was shaking, I remember. And I remember my galloping heart rate absolutely matched his heart rate on the monitor. And I brought him up. And we got him in a room, and we started pouring blood products into him, platelets and clotting factors and blood products. But it was like pouring them into a sieve because he was bleeding so much. And I had to put an IV, a large central line, into his, into his groin, into his femoral vein. And under normal circumstances, the femoral vein is about the size of a man's thumb, and it's you know, half a centimeter under the skin, and it's pretty easy to hit. But in someone with a dropping blood pressure... Um, and with, even with the steadiest of hands, uh, it's, it's really like stabbing a minnow underwater with a toothpick, and it's, it's very hard to do. So I was sort of trying, and, you know, he was thrashing around so much that it required two people to hold down every limb. And I um, finally stopped noticing the absolute futility of continuing to attempt this procedure, and I said, Sir, what, what can I help you with? Why are you thrashing around? And he said something that I remember receiving as odd, but I, I, it didn't really register at the time. He said, um, Mais ma soeur, pourquoi vous ne me laissez pas chanter? Je veux chanter. I want to sing. Why won't you let me sing? And I looked at the nurses holding his limbs down and the orderlies, you know, making sure he didn't, you know, pull out every IV that had been put in him. And I said, um... Does anyone mind if he sings? And, and no one did. And so I was like, Mais monsieur, on vous laisse? Vous pouvez chanter, pas de problème. Go ahead. Go ahead, sing. And, um, and he sang. And it was haunting and beautiful. And it was this 
uh, African-inflected religious song that had elements of a schoolyard chant. It was that catchy. And I'm, I'm musically uh, deficient, so I can't remember a note or a word, but I would give almost anything to be able to have the recording. Um, and I realized at the time that it was tantamount to prayer. He was praying, for sure. And um, after he sang, his whole body relaxed. And the lines between his eyebrows that seemed completely etched just melted away. And he just sank into a sleep, and I, to the extent that I could put in this femoral line into his vein with suddenly, like, unexpectedly steady hands. And, um, and then he sank into a rictus, and then as his last breaths sort of faded away, uh, he died 20 minutes after his swan song. And um, this represented many firsts to me. And the first first was that it was the first patient of mine that I, I witnessed dying. And uh, incidentally, it's actually also this, the first time I ever liked a hymn because I, I had only ever heard the sort of leaden, mumbly hymns of, of um, other people's churches. Um, but most meaningfully for me, it represented the first time that I realized something that every hard-bitten ICU nurse knows, um, which is that people, even very sick people, can choose when they die. And what I had actually witnessed is someone, this man who had been dying slowly for months and then extremely rapidly in front of my eyes for hours, looking at death in the face, and meeting the reaper, and if not beating him, racing him. That's actually one yes. of our favorite stories. That was yeah. told how many years ago? A long time ago. Yeah. Um, so that was the show on First Times, and it was like in our probably only in like our third year. And what I always remember about that story is her description of the white of the gentleman's eyes being the color of a yellow highlighter and how that's such an example of like how like three words can make you see the whole situation and see how dangerous and, and serious it is, right? Yeah, and her spirit and her soul was just with her in that moment um, of stress and she was able to create a beautiful space for him. Well, yeah. Yeah. And that, that realization, I mean, I, I didn't know what she says at the end of the story, which is that even very sick people have some control over when they die. And that, that was new to me. Um, so that was even a beautiful thing to learn. Yeah, so that is one of our favorite stories. Before we get on to the next story, we want to thank Baltimore Magazine, a longtime sponsor of the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. You can find them at baltimoremagazine.com or on the newsstand. And we want to thank Golden West. I actually walked by there today. They had their window open, um, serving food. They've got great vegan Southwestern food and doing a carryout window and just really good people. So support them on the avenue in Hamden. So this next story was shared at a show that we did in November of last year, November of 2019, that was a story about uh, immigration and refugees. 
and a way to kind of uh, combat or at least offer another view of the um, sort of immigrant situation through the personal stories of, of immigrants and refugees and folks from uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Humanitarian Health who work on those issues. And so this gentleman, um, Hussam Al-Nahas, is, is a doctor and he is Syrian and he um, was here in Baltimore to study, to get his Master's of Public Health at Hopkins so that he can learn how to go, have get more skills to go back and sort of rebuild the Syrian healthcare system. This story is absolutely riveting. I just remember when he told it to me over the phone that night, I shared it with my kids at dinner and we just talked about how he's a real life superhero. So I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. I've always wanted to be a doctor. Helping others was really my passion. I grew up in Damascus, surrounded by a great family, surrounded with love and support. I still remember in 2006, my mother hugging me tightly and my father dancing when we got the letter from Aleppo University that I was accepted to study medicine. With a lot of joy, a lot of happiness, they said goodbye to me with some worries and some tears because I was leaving them from far southern Syria to far northern Syria to study medicine in Aleppo. And as smooth as it should be, I spent my first six year, five years doing good in the university, prepared in 2012 to graduate after finishing my sixth year. But because of the uprising, the Syrian uprising against the Syrian government, the impact of that uprising started to affect Aleppo city. And as in other places around Syria, the way the security forces and the army faced the protesters and faced the protests, it was the same scenario in, in, in Aleppo. So they invaded the campus, they killed people, they didn't allow them to go to hospitals, they arrested people from their beds on the hospitals, and this is what I had. I had two choices either to ignore what was happening, pretending that nothing is important, continue my education, graduate to fulfill my dream, or take a step further and act as a real doctor, helping people during demonstrations and leave my education. It was not a very hard choice to choose the later. I left my education. I met some of my friends, trusted friends, close friends, with some professors from the university, and we created what we called the Light of Life medical team. It was very dangerous to, to create such team, so we had to change our names. We used unregistered phone numbers, so we can be as hidden as possible from the government, but yet as visible as possible to people. We were able, during a few months, to save tens of lives, secure, safe referrals to a lot of injured people from their injured side to hospitals, provide them with more complicated and more advanced medical services. We did what we thought was a great job. Until mid of June 2012, when three of our team members were arrested 
by the Syrian government. We didn't know what we have to do, but we knew one thing. We should continue to work because a lot of people were depending on us. In 24th of June 2012, at 7 a.m., one of the team members and a very close friend to me called me at 7 a.m., crying like crazy, telling me, Hussam, they're gone. I didn't know what happened, so I rushed to him and I knew the story. The day after, I was in front of hundreds of people during one of the demonstrations, wearing my lab coat, putting my stethoscope, and I told the story. I said, yesterday we lost three heroes, Basil, Musab, and Hazem. Those three were always around you, wanted to help you and save your lives, but the Syrian government didn't like that. So they arrested them, they tortured them, they extracted their nails, they broke their limbs, they shoot them in the head, and then they burned them. They wanted to tell us through them that this is what will happen to anyone who will try to help. This is a new start for us. This is when we will stand with you against that government, and we will help you. And if they died for you, then it's our honor to die for you as well. And this was a new start, where we expanded the team, we started working in more dangerous areas, helping other people, not only in the city itself, but even in the countryside. Until one day I was with my close friend, the same one, getting some grocery from inside the city, and where we were surprised by three armed individuals. They asked us for our documents, and I had three things. An ID, personal ID, indicates that I'm from Damascus. A medical student ID, and a very small notebook with a list of medical equipments. For them, that was enough. That's one of them raised his machine gun on my head and took me to the detention center. There, they took all our belongings and they hand, handed two small papers stamped with blue with some numbers I cannot remember, but I remember my friend telling me, Hussam, we are under arrest. Do you think it's our time to be burned? I was so afraid, but I couldn't speak. A few minutes later, they dragged us down to a dungeon where they forced us to take off all our clothes and then separated us, tightened my hand, closed my eyes, forced me to lay down on my face, and then start beating me. Beating hurted me, but what hurted me more was that they were expressing how good for them was to beat a doctor. And the only question that they were asking who are the other doctors you were working with? After that, after beating me on every spot on my body that can hurt, they dragged me to a prison cell. It was an empty room, completely from anything, but 53 people. Full of death, dark room. I was recognized as a doctor. 
with all the suffer that they had. They shared their food, which was not enough. And they allowed me to sit in a place that is the, be- that is the best place in the whole room. But what was killing me was a boy, 13 years old boy, sitting in the other corner who came to me and said, Doctor, I was trying to run away from some agents and they shoot me in my abdomen. They operated me and the next day they brought me to here. I, I feel huge pain. Can you help me? And he was vomiting and crying all the time. And I said, no. I spent 16 days when one day someone called my name. I went out and there was one of the detectors. He said, can you see that patient? He's vomiting all the time. I checked him and I knew that part of the torture session was beating someone on his head hardly. So I checked him. I said, he probably suffered from an internal bleeding in his brain. So if you don't take him to the hospital, he will die. And he looked at him and said, go to hell. One day later, he died. On the same day, someone called my name. And it was like a national holiday because it was Ramadan feast. I didn't expect anything. So I went out with my friend and we were shocked that they are going to release us. I didn't know why, but I found myself outside for the first time after 17 days taking that clean air and breathing again and I said I'm not going to let down all those people behind me and I will continue I called my family and my I the first thing that I heard from my mom crying saying why you did that to me and I traveled immediately from Aleppo to Damascus I saw how stressful the whole period was on them Emotionally and financially. At the end, in a corrupted system, it's not easy to get someone from death. I was watching what was happening in Syria from Damascus, surrounded by my family, but I couldn't do anything. The security fist in the, in the city was so tense that I was afraid to do anything. But at a certain point, I said, no, I will not stay. I had that chance not to stay near my family. I have to do something. And I planned to run away from my family. And it was on 30th of November, 2012, 6 a.m., I wrote a letter to my mom, was prepared to go out. When I noticed that they locked the door and hid the keys. While I was looking, they figured out that I was trying to go out They start shouting and yelling, trying to convince me not to go, but I couldn't. So I took the keys, ran to the door, and this is when my mom rushed to the kitchen, brought the biggest knife in the house, put it in my hand, rose it up to her chest, and said, kill me before going. I cannot tolerate living every minute of my life waiting someone to call me and say, Hossam is dead. I told her, mom, you know, you raised me to do this and you know it's right. And she said, well, it's right, but what about me? Please think about me. And I said, no, mom, you know my, you know my decision. 
and I went. And I spent two years in what was considered as the most dangerous city in the world, which was Aleppo. I lived in a hospital that that was targeted by the government in daily basis. At certain point, I left the city, I moved to Turkey, I had a chance to continue my education, and my family was always beside me, supporting me. And then I got the chance to come here and study this MPH. And I do believe that I still have the same commitment to my country, to my people, to help them, not only with my passion, but also with the knowledge that I'm going to get from this program. Thank you. Someone lives by their code, you know, makes a really difficult and dangerous decision and and ends up really kind of scaring his mother and hurting, you know, hurting people in his life because they're worried about him. But he's got a code and he's living by that code. And I just I find that just so admirable and inspiring and necessary for where we are right now. We need more of that. Okay, so um, what we also need more of is um, wine and beer. Yes, and- I'm, I'm having a glass right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am still on the wagon, so other people need more of it. I judge you if you need it. <laughs> I myself am just amazing without it. That's not true. It's really hard. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but I can still go and get uh, coffee and chocolate and things like that. And just, kombucha. You know, yeah, kombucha. Uh, like I said, Last week, high-end seltzers at the Wine Source in Hamden uh, on Elm. It is so check them out. So clean and so bustling, and just a great place to hang out all day if you need to to feel human again. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also check us out at SoupStorytelling.com. We want to thank Maureen Harvey who is producing the podcast, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.